Marriage Story is a melancholy movie that details the trauma of divorce, but it also offers a ray of hope. Life goes on, Bombac is saying, as festering wounds eventually heal and a new normalcy develops. That's from Bob Bloom of Journal and Courier in Lafayette, Indiana. I like that review of Marriage Story, one of the films that we're reviewing this time on Cinephile, in addition to talking about Abominable, another kids movie out, and our special guest, Rebecca Keegan from The Hollywood Reporter. I reached out to Rebecca and she was great to come on, get her thoughts on Francis Ford Coppola agreeing with his boy, Marty Scorsese, and doubling down on the criticism of Marvel movies, but doing so in a much harsher way than Marty was. To, to quote Coppola, Martin was being kind, they're despicable. All right. Clearly not a fan of Aquaman. Uh, that we'll get into with Rebecca. And also our Mount Rushmore, speaking of Abominable, we'll be talking about kids' movies and uh, go into that. As always, um, really appreciate all the comments. Please do subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, this one here from The Justin. The show is great. Although we have different movie tastes, I enjoy the reviews. Loved hearing you on the Rosillo show last week. He needs to come on. Uh, the bad guy. I love this pod. Always fun, full of great movie info and honest reviews. I love Adnan since his time at ESPN and the Levitard show. He's as likable a host and a great movie guy. I love the Bada Binge. That's right, Bada Binge. We've only got four more weeks left. Thank you. Appreciate that very much from the bad guy. Also here from Joe Caracci, and this one is a great one. Excellent pod with a great balance of interviews and reviews, but the fifth star is all for the shout-out to Big Night. No movie has made me go straight to my favorite Italian restaurant and order enough food for my extended family. Keep up the good work, Adnan, from Jay Caracci. Thank you so much, man. I adore Big Night. If you haven't heard it, Jay, uh, and it's Jay Dots. I don't know if it's actually Jason, but I'm going to go with Jay Caracci. Uh, go check out the interview I did with Tony Shalhoub because I brought up Big Night with him, and he had a really good answer about that. I mean, it's just a just a fantastic movie. Also, I hear from Kel's new listener, but subscribe right away. Really love the way Adnan looks into films, breaks them down. No spoilers. Just a smart way of looking at things. Can't wait for future episodes. And check out the Going Off Topic podcast. Shameless plug, Caddyshack Forever. All right, we'll get one more in here from Steve Lager. Always insightful, consistently gives me films to go back and rewatch, as well as new ones to check out for the first time. Rewatched Taxi Driver and Seven this week after Adnan mentioned them in a couple recent episodes. Forgot how much I love them. Oh, thanks so much, Steve. Appreciate that. It's nice to always go back to great movies like that. Joe, do you remember? When did I mention Seven? I, I often mention Taxi Driver. I think I was talking about Joker. When did I mention Seven? Maybe it was in the same review? I'm not sure. I think we were doing, it was during our Mount Rushmore segment, and we were looking at, I think, psychological thrillers. Ah, uh, yes, that could be it. You're right. I think Seven was in that one as well. All right, good. I appreciate everyone listening. Good stuff as always. Let's start out now with Marriage Story, which is going to be on Netflix, I believe, in December. But it's actually going to be in limited release in theaters November 6th. So I figured we'd get out the jump right now and talk about Noah Baumbach's film, which I was happy enough and lucky enough to see. Thanks to a very generous person I sat next to for The Irishman. So she gave me her ticket, Melanie Bialis, Mel B, hooking it up. So I got to watch Marriage Story at the New York Film Festival. And again, if you've never seen a movie at the New York Film Festival, you got to go. It's such a special experience because the whole crowd's into it. Nobody just stumbled into the movie. Everyone's there because they're excited and they're fired up and they're knowledgeable film fans. And Noah Baumbach was there, the writer-director, as was Adam Driver, as was Scarlett Johansson, as was the rest of the supporting cast, which is excellent. Alan Alda, Laura Dern, and Ray Liotta. And uh, the story is this, marriage story, but it could be called divorce story because it's about a couple that is going through a divorce and trying to do things as painlessly as possible. And I love the way that the movie starts, a really smart, engaging way by Noah Baumbach. The first words are, in fact, voiceover narration, and it is both Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver 
each taking turns complimenting the the other. So you have Scarlett Johansson talking about Adam Driver, such a great husband, and the fact that uh, he's a great father and he's always there for the kids. He even loves the things that you should hate um, when you're a parent, which is the kids having tantrums or kids, you know, being up in the middle of the night. Um, and then likewise, he's praising her for the fact she's sensitive and caring and the way she, you know, falls asleep while reading a book or this and that. It's a really nice extended sequence. And then you see the two characters in a therapy session. You go, oh, okay, well, <laughs> they're not getting back together. This is not reconciliation. The therapist recommends they start out by praising each other so that when things get a little bit messy, they remember, you know, why they first fell in love with each other and all that kind of stuff. And of course, the therapy session then ends badly. And away we go. And uh, Marriage Story is, is, I think, definitely one of the best films of the year. I think it's going to be on lots of best of lists. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs because I enjoyed it so much. And I thought it was just a really smart film. Uh, first credit goes to Noah Baumbach, who is the writer and director, who himself was going through a divorce with Jennifer Jason Lee, Loved her in Hateful Eight. And uh, Scarlett Johansson also came through a divorce. So um, when he wrote the script, he based a lot of it on his own experiences. And Scarlett Johansson really connected to the script, having been through it herself. And so they kind of had their own um, kinship over the material, which, as that review noted, is definitely raw and painful. And the, and the best sequence in the entire movie is this argument that her and Adam Driver have, which is just explosive. And it's just so heated and it's so raw because all the emotion comes spilling out and all these long gestating uh, grudges and wounds that have been nursed or finally just, you know, come to the surface. It's like not like picking off a scab. It's like just ripping off the Band-Aid hole and there's just blood gushing. That's the equivalent of watching this argument between the two. But it is ferociously well done. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine one of the many things I appreciate about actors is how they do take after take. And I couldn't imagine doing multiple takes of that scene. Even doing it once must have been exhausting emotionally. To imagine Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson doing it multiple times is uh, is almost too much to bear. But it's a very powerful sequence. It comes in the final third of the movie. And um, most of the movie, though, is not that. Most of the movie is not reconciliation, but managing as best as you can with adversity. Right? For whatever reason... She wants to, to go out, and he's like, okay, well, I guess if the relationship's going to end, and we've all been there, we've all had relationships end, well, how do we make this work as best as possible? And it's a much cleaner break when there's no children involved, but of course, they do have a child, so how do we figure this out? And she's an actress that wants to go back to L.A., and he's a theater director in New York. So first and foremost, geography, how's this going to work? Are we living in New York? We're living in L.A. Well, she wants to be in L.A., but I can't leave because i got the theater director. And I'm, uh, you know, i got my theater company, et cetera. Well, what about the kid? Well, then he's in school 10 months of the year, et cetera. And so at first, maybe they're a little bit naive, but they're hoping to figure it out themselves. But then Driver kind of gets knocked for a loop once he sees ScarJo has already hired a lawyer. And in the performance of the film and perhaps one of the best performances of the year, Laura Dern is absolutely going to get nominated for Best Supporting Actress and I would think might win because she is tremendous. I mean, she is exactly what you expect divorce lawyers to be, which is cunning and sharp and brilliant, and they do it all with a big, broad smile on their face. I mean, the sequences where the four of them are all sitting down, and at first the lawyer for Adam Driver is Alan Alda, who again is, is wonderful because he's just so avuncular and kind and he's like an old couch he's just like a comfy guy he just want to squeeze his cheeks but of course he's no match for laura dern and she's just running circles around him with the kind of stuff that she has um in terms of trying to build the case that you know her client scarlett johansson should get full custody and that they should live in los angeles and that 
Adam Driver should be paying X amount of money because of A, B, and C. Like it's it's amazing how well she's done. Which is where you enter Ray Liotta because again he is a shark of the same persuasion who is totally hard boiled and tough. And I wish he had more screen time in the movie. He's only in a few scenes, but Liotta's fantastic. I mean he's he's such a good actor, and it's good to see him with a role like this, which provides him some meat. Uh, really, as a, as the kind of shark that can circle with Dern, but. This is the the way of divorce, especially in today's age. You got to figure things out, and unfortunately, things get messy. Things get a bit dirty. It doesn't mean that the couples don't still love each other. It just means that for whatever reason, they can't be together. But at what point they were in love, now they no longer are. Let's try to make the separation as painless as possible. But of course, that is not easy to do. And I thought the movie really nailed all the potential pitfalls of it. And the the biggest key with Marriage Story the way Noah Baumbach wrote it, conceived it, and eventually delivered it, is that you're not picking sides, that you're not saying, oh, yeah, she's this and he's that. You're constantly changing your opinion. In fact, you're kind of volleying, you're ping-ponging in your own mind saying, well, I could see why she'd be upset because, you know what, God, I wouldn't have married him either. But then you watch him going, you know what, but that's kind of unfair what she's saying there because, you know, she knew the deal. She knew the guy was a workaholic, theater director, et cetera. Oh, well, but the kid, well, you know, hey, she can't be expected to do everything. She's got her own career. How come she has to sacrifice for him? And I think when you're doing that as an audience, you know, when you're making the film experience interactive, that's always a great movie. You know, it's like I always get frustrated with people who don't like baseball. They say there's boring, there's nothing happening. I'm like, no, everything's happening. Like, you're boring. You're the one not understanding what's happening. You're not looking at the fact, where's the catcher setting up? What's the pitch going to be? Where are the outfielders shading? What the pitcher, what the hitter do the last time he was up? Where is he looking in the zone? Are there runners on base? What's the crowd environment like, et cetera? Same thing in a movie. If you're just passively watching action entertainment, okay, that's fine. But the best movies make you think along with them. And Marriage Story, thankfully, is refreshing in that. And with a movie like this, you got to stick the landing. The only reason I'm taking a half a Maple Leaf off, there's a scene near the end of the movie which felt a little bit like Oscar bait to me with regards to Adam Driver's character. And again, maybe this was the downside of being with this crowd, but the crowd started cheering at the scene, and I was like, this is a little much to me. I thought it was a little hackneyed. The way the scene was not only conceived but also delivered. And I said, mm. I don't like when a movie is trying that hard to wring emotion out of me. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll take a little bit of sentiment at times, but when you're when I can see the strings being played, um, then I get a little bit annoyed. And I do think the first 20 minutes or so take a little while to get rolling. You, you do think, hey, is this going to be one of these talky dramas that I could just watch on Netflix in three different sittings? And eventually it kind of finds its footing. So I'm going to give it three, three and a half Maple Leafs while still stating that I think it's going to be one of the best films of 2019. I totally get why it's an awards heavyweight, why it's being mentioned for certainly nominations for Driver and for Johansson and for Bombac. Scarlett Johansson's never been nominated for an Academy Award before. I think she'll get nominated for Best Actress. Driver's never won before. He might win for Best Actor up against Joaquin Phoenix for Joker and a few others as well. But it's a really strong film. I recommend it. And I do think that the ending did a good job of trying to uh, balance out the fact you feel for these characters and you root for them, even though you realize that them being together is no longer in the picture. Joe? Very, very excited to see it. I kind of have one question for you. This seems like such a heavy topic, but I've also read that it's still really funny at times. So was uh, Noah Bobak able to balance out a comedic tone throughout the movie while dealing with such a heavy topic. Yeah, great point, man. There's a, there's at least a handful of like laugh out loud moments that are really funny. And uh, again, it's not demonizing the characters. It just shows that sometimes people are a little bit overwhelmed. And so you kind of just laughed at the way that the angst kind of overcomes them or the frustration. So yes, absolutely. You're right. Even though it's 
should be heavy subject matter, which is the unraveling of a union. It actually is quite funny because it shows how human these characters are and the frustrations that they're dealing with. So yes, I should point that out. It's even though you might think it's a heavy movie, it's one of these Academy movies with, you know, the Oscar with a capital O. It actually is really funny and entertaining. And if you've seen the squid and the whale, which is a really good Noah Baumbach movie, which I liked a lot with Jeff Daniels, it is definitely similar in tone to that. I used to say about Baumbach, he's kind of like Wes Anderson light, you know, he's, he's similar style in that, you know, his movies are maybe a little bit too cute for some, but, I think in this instance, he really does a good job of, of making a very universal story while still kind of uh, fulfilling that independent spirit, which you can tell is a part of his ethos. So good point, Joe, mentioning the humor because it is actually quite funny. Uh, the other film I want to review before we get to Rebecca Keegan, our special guest, is Abominable. There's not too much to say, except it's thankfully not an abomination. Uh, it is the latest kids movie right now in theaters doing well at the box office, unsurprisingly. Uh, it's a story about a Yeti. If you like good snowmen, this is the way to go. 83% currently on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and it's about a teenager and her two friends who are trying they discover a Yeti on the roof of her building and then try to find the other ones as well. So a couple things I liked about it. One, you've got a diverse cast. Uh, a lot of Asian Americans as the voices. Chloe Bennett as Yi, Albert Tsai as Peng, uh, Tenzing Norgay Tra as Jin. Uh, so that's, first of all, nice to see, along with more established actors like, you know, a Sarah Paulson or an Eddie Izzard, but Sai Chin, Michelle Wong. So James Hong as well. Good to see a diverse voice cast with Abominable. And honestly, it's a familiar story. It's about acceptance, uh, as you can imagine, with the story. But a Yeti, it's about somebody who is an outsider yet trying to fit in. But I thought it was charming and very sweet. And uh, ultimately, like I said, it's a story you've seen before, but it's well done. As always, strong animation from the likes of DreamWorks and uh, some of the visuals, particularly the... Uh, I mean, just the sequences with all the snow and stuff. It is quite elaborate the way they were able to put everything together. So Jill Colton is the director. Good one to hear for young kids out there and for parents to either watch or get a snooze in. I'll give Abominable three Maple Leafs as well. Uh, as we now dovetail towards some entertainment news, got a few things here to focus on, one of which is Robert Zemeckis back in the news. That's right. Zemeckis obviously was back to the future day. I believe yesterday, we're taping this on a Tuesday, being released on a Wednesday. So I believe on Monday, there's Back to the Future Day. So news involving Zemeckis. He's in early talks to direct Disney's live-action Pinocchio. Uh, White's penning the script. That would be Chris White's uh, patented director, Paul King. Originally was going to direct it, but now he's left for some reason. So Zemeckis has been eyeing the project for a while. He's working on his current picture of The Witches for Warner Brothers. Did not want to commit, but at one point, Tom Hanks was actually circling the role. He eventually passed, but... Zemeckis is probably going to look to try to find his own Geppetto. Let's just hope it's better than the Roberto Benigni movie. I mean, Benigni was so talented and was given so much after Life is Beautiful, which is a wonderful film. And then he goes up and makes Pinocchio, which is a giant turd, and nobody ever wanted to see Roberto Benigni ever again. So hopefully Zemeckis will not, uh, will not have the same pitfall when it comes to Pinocchio. Also news here involving Paul Dano, really good actor, loved him in uh, Love and Mercy. He actually played... Um, Brian Wilson. It's a really good Beach Boys movie. Giamatti's terrific as the shrink, the, the the villain in that. But yeah, Dano is really good. And of course, he's great in There Will Be Blood, although he does get just overwhelmed by Daniel Day-Lewis's Daniel Plainview. But Dano now going to be the Riddler in the Batman reboot for Matt Reeves. Uh, other things he's done, of course, Escape at Dano Mora, Swiss Army Man, and Looper. Jonah Hill no longer in contention for an unspecified role in the film. Apparently, it came down to money. That was one of the stories that Maybe Jonah wanted a little bit more than they're willing to pay, but Robert Pattinson is going to be the Cape Crusader. He is taking over the role from Ben Affleck, who starred as a Dark Knight in two DC films. Zoe Kravitz has been cast as Selena Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, and now you got Dano as the Riddler. I mean, he's a good young actor, so I definitely think he's got the acting chops, 
And Pattinson is, uh, at least with a couple of indies, which have not been seen by a lot of people, has shown his chops. Although I'm looking forward to seeing The Lighthouse, which is the new Robert Pattinson, Willem Dafoe movie, and apparently it's excellent. So um, maybe he'll continue what should be a good streak for him. What do you make of this one, Joe? Dano as the Riddler. I'll see anything that he's in. I really like him as an actor. He's really good, and most people forget, too, that he played AJ's friend in season six of The Sopranos as well with nice. a terrible bowl cut. So just because of that rule, I'll see him in anything. <laughs> yeah, I was going through The Sopranos sessions. They do have in the footnotes the fact that Paul Dano was in the show. You're right. You got a cameo there as one of Anthony Jr.'s friends. One uh, other story here involving Quentin Tarantino. He is not backing down in his stand-up with China. Despite China delaying its release, the filmmaker's movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood due to its depiction of Bruce Lee, he has no intention of recutting it for the country. According to the Hollywood Report, Tarantino is taking a take-it-or-leave-it stance in the wake of Chinese regulators pulling the film from the schedule a week before its release in the country, October 25th. Did not like the way that Lee is shown in the film, and that's why they put it on hold. And uh, speaking to Variety, one exhibitor source said, as long as Quentin can make some cuts, it will be released as planned, but now it's clear that won't happen. So, interesting. Criminal Jabbar wrote a great article in The Hollywood Reporter criticizing Tarantino for his depiction of Bruce Lee and the fact that Criminal Jabbar was friends with him and said, listen, this is not an accurate portrait of my friend. And I love Quentin Tarantino. He said, I love his movies. I think he's a great director. But it's an irresponsible way to show Bruce Lee. It's, in fact, just fitting with those stereotypes of Asian men being small or not as equipped physically or... And he goes, that's not Bruce Lee. Like Bruce Lee, he goes, you watch the movie and you think he's cartoonish. He's this clown who thinks he's tough. And then Brad Pitt's guy, you know, totally wears him out. The white guy just nails down the foreigner. And he said, in real life, Bruce Lee was charming. He was funny. He was personable. Like he, he really, you should read the article if you haven't read it. Kareem Dilzerbar really made a strong case for denouncing Tarantino and his depiction of Bruce Lee and the fact that it was just cartoonish and unfair. So I'm not surprised here, Joe, that Tarantino is not backing down. He's the filmmaker. He can make the movie with whatever interpretation he wants. And if you've seen the film, so the ending is open to interpretation. He's not following history verbatim. But I also get uh, China's rules. And you know what? This is a guy we love who is beloved. We don't like the fact that he made him into a bit of a clown. Yeah, and I wonder what, you know, I, I understand his artistic expression and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's point, but... If spoiler alert, if nobody's seen the movie, Bruce Lee, his character is only in the movie for one scene, so it kind of just seems like they could have just taken out that scene. Um, so I wonder, yeah. I wonder I, what I'm, with you, I'm surprised that. Tarantino's drawn a line on the sand over something like this, to your point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, but you know, we'll see what happens in the extended cut if there's a better representation when that drops on Netflix, um, in the future. So stay tuned. And with that, we go to our special guest. A pleasure to talk to Rebecca Keegan here on Cinephile. She and I hooked up a couple years ago in talking about the Oscars. We were doing preview shows for the Academy and Oscar.com. So we go from a beautiful lot there in Hollywood to now joining via... Well, via the world today, which is always through phones and texting and all the rest of it, and Twitter DMs. Rebecca, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Hi, glad to be here. Any any opportunity to talk about Martin Scorsese and be it podcast or wherever I'm down. Yeah, exactly. You can follow Rebecca, by the way, on Twitter at that Rebecca. She's the Hollywood Reporter senior film editor. She's also written books in Young Frankenstein and James Cameron, which, by the way, led to a very funny Twitter exchange, which I'll ask you about, which you sent out recently about an interview you did with Cameron and. Uh, 
well, some of his colorful language, which he used. But let's talk first about Marty, because I know you watched The Irishman, and I loved your review of it, which I literally turned my phone on after I'd seen it on that Friday at the New York Film Festival and thought you nailed it with your review. But let's talk first about the fact he's got a gripe here against Marvel movies. His initial comments, he said that the films made by Marvel Studios were not cinema, gets a bunch of backlash from Joss Whedon and Kevin Smith and James Gunn. I'm thinking at this point, Rebecca, he's going to back down and say, okay, sorry, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. just not my kind of movies. But no, then he reiterates the London Film Festival, superhero movies are invading cinema, which increasingly resemble a theme park. And then one of his boys, Francis Ford Coppola, who's now 80 years old, said when Martin Scorsese says he says that Marvel <laughs> pictures are not cinema, he's right because we expect to learn something from cinema. We expect to gain something, some enlightenment, some knowledge, some inspiration. I don't know that anyone gets anything out of seeing the same movie over and over again. Martin was kind when he said it's not cinema. He didn't say it's despicable, which I just say it is. Your thoughts? Whoa. I, first of all, I love the idea of Coppola as one of anyone's boys. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I feel like both Scorsese and Coppola and some of the other folks who've spoken out, including Ken Loach, uh, Fernando Morales, these are people, directors being asked about this issue since Scorsese's comments. They're all kind of responding to the idea that Marvel movies or comic book movies or, or these sort of action movies are the only thing that a certain generation believes are worth going to the movie for. So it's not so much that they particularly hate these breed of movies, although in, in Coppola's case, it seems like he just really hates the movies. It's, it's the idea that they've kind of got this oppressive level of influence in Hollywood, and they are not leaving room for any other type of movie to attract audiences to movie theaters. I think you nailed it. I think this is all, if Marty had said this, which I would completely agree with, Rebecca, if he just said, listen, the top 12 grossing movies are all superhero movies. It's not my thing. And I worry that Hollywood is pacing too much of a premium on these kind of movies. And we're not making the kind of movies that I think are very essential to cinema. But I respect them. And hey, if you like them, fine. They're not my kind of thing. Then I think he's okay. Right. If he just said, listen, right. I miss when we used to have studios who would invest in Breaking the Waves and Sling Blade and Fargo and the great independent movies of the 90s. And we don't have those anymore. As you and I both know, you get movies made for two million and hopefully Barry Jenkins can make a moonlight that'll win Best Picture or it's a hundred million dollars and it's a it's a superhero movie and it's going to have a built in budget overseas and it better do well in China. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to make the movie. And all those independent type filmmakers are going towards TV or streaming or other things like that. I think if he had said that, maybe people wouldn't have been upset. Maybe they still would be. But once you say it's not cinema, well, then even someone like myself who is not into superhero movies, who I completely would share the opinion more of. And by the way, for perspective, people know Ken Loach. This is a great director, Wind That Shakes the Barley. Uh, Fernando Morales did City of God. These are really smart guys. And Martin Scorsese, as you and I both know, will forget more about movies than the rest of us will ever know about cinema. So this is an authority on the subject. But we know that there are exceptions. Logan's a great movie. You know, Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse is a great movie. There's a few in there. But I think whenever you say a blanket statement in today's world, people get very offended and very upset. Yeah, and, I, you know, it's interesting um, this weekend is the Governor's Awards here in Hollywood, which is an event that the Academy puts on that many Oscar contenders come out to, and Martin Scorsese will be there. Um, so will Todd Phillips, the director of The Joker, who <laughs> in many ways made The Joker because he wanted to make Taxi Driver, and there was no kind of economy in Hollywood for it. So he made a comic book movie that was, in his mind, like a Martin Scorsese movie. So it's it's kind of interesting how there's a there's a lot 
that fits into the genre comic book movie. It's probably a lot richer and more complex than Scorsese has taken in. I'm willing to bet he's watched one or two. They weren't for him. Uh, in Fernando Morales's case, I heard he, he watched a Spider-Man movie. He tried to watch another one on a plane, and he gave up about half an hour in, which is a lot of people's experience with certain movies. But it's certainly not the whole breadth of comic book movies. Is it? Did they see Guardians of the Galaxy? Did they see Thor 2? Did they see uh, you know, The Dark Knight? Who knows? Yeah, I'm with you. What's, what's your personal taste, by the way, when it comes to superhero movies? Because I think they're oversaturated. Are you at that point, or do you still think there's value? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I am I am one of the um, silly people who predicted when Iron Man 2 came out that this <laughs> may this genre of movie may have seen its day. Iron Man was good. Iron Man 2, not so much. So much for comic book movies. So, ha, ha, ha to me. It seems like their their reign will be much longer and much more uh, impactful than I predicted and than is to my personal taste. I also feel just kind of like I've had enough of them. Even when they're good, even when they make me laugh, um, they're, they're, they're just are kind of everywhere and they're also they also tend to be really long which i don't love i mean you know scorsese no stranger to long movies himself the you and i both sat through the irishman it is long 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 but these comic book movies keep getting longer and longer with these third act vfx sequences that i sometimes find myself checking out during yeah i knew i was in trouble when black panther which is rave reviews huge box office when i didn't care for that when i'm sitting in the theater going hey this is tedious like i I'd like rather be watching something else. Then I knew I, I clearly was in trouble because everybody else is raving about that movie specifically. Yeah, I disagree with you there. Well, I mean that one, even the visuals and the, it, the story, it was it felt so different and so fresh to me. That was a case of a comic book movie that I actually forgot was a comic book movie because uh, <laughs> until you said it, I was like, oh yeah, you're right. That movie that I loved, Black Panther, total <laughs> comic book movie. But which, by the way, there's a story circling. Apparently, Coppola told Coogler he does like Black Panther. This is before these comments were made. So I don't know if that was uh, Francis just being generous or he forgot that Black Panther is a superhero movie or he's not counting it as a superhero movie. Who knows? But apparently he did like Black Panther. Yeah, um, maybe like well, me, he was remembering it as a travelogue of a fictional African country, not as a <laughs> uh, superhero movie. He just stumbled upon. Oh, this is this cannot be categorized as a superhero movie. This is far too good to be that. Um yeah. So the Irishman, I'm so excited to see it. Obviously, like anybody who loves movies, and you know, to get to, to you know this cast together, and there's so much hype. And so I'm seeing it at the New York Film Festival, and I'm terrified because Joe, a producer, says, um, you know, stay off Twitter. I'm seeing it at the 3 p.m. screening on the Friday, and it's 2:45, and he goes, hey, stay off your Twitter because some reviews are coming out. And I said, oh my god, how could this be possible? I thought I was seeing it at the world premiere, 3 p.m. Alice Tully Hall, and there's an 8 p.m. Alice Tully Hall, which I tried to get tickets for, but of course, that's where like Steven Spielberg's going to be. Like that, that was immediately gone within two minutes. That's for industry people. How could people have already seen it? And then after the movie was over, when I turned my phone on, I saw, oh, okay, there had been a critic screening at 9 a.m., which I believe you were a part of. Is that correct? I was, yeah, and, 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 well, a screening that started at 10 a.m. L.A. time on uh in the screening room at Netflix. So there were probably 30 of us there seeing it. So that would have been 1 p.m. New York time. Okay, because what happened is that afterwards when I turned my phone on, I was like, okay, what are the reviews? And by the way, I was terrified. What are the reviews are coming? People, I hate it. It's too long. Oh, God, Marty's lost his mind. But then they were all unanimously praiseworthy. And I thought yours nailed it. I mean, yours, I popped up right away and it said, this is Scorsese's Unforgiven. And I said, God, that's brilliant because it's, it's, 
elegiac was the word that came to my mind and mournful, but also, as you pointed out, it's almost like a statement on his body of work. It's like, and I know he doesn't like the movie, the term mob movie, so I'll say organized crime out of deference to him, but he and, and De Niro and Pacino and Pesci have combined to give so much to organized crime films. This is a fitting coda to that. This is a statement on it. Maybe it is an apology in some ways. And for you to say it's like his Unforgiven, I thought was such a perfect statement. It encapsulates so much about what The Irishman is. If you can expand upon why you thought of that movie in relation to this one. Well, yeah, well, Unforgiven was kind of Clint Eastwood grappling with his legacy of of violence in Westerns, right? And And in many ways, I think, Scorsese is grappling with his legacy uh, of violence in, uh, I'll say it, in mob movies. I mean, the the De Niro character, which the Irishman tracks, you know, from, I guess, what, probably about 40 years old through to uh, very, very late in his life. The last hour of the movie, which I found the most um, impactful, is, is really him kind of grappling with what he's done and who he is in very subtle ways, uh, performance wise. Um, and it felt to me like, yeah, this is, this is an older man's movie. This is Scorsese reflecting on legacy. And, and what a legacy it is. And I'm sure that the first thoughts that you have had and people have said to you, as soon as you saw it, there's the two questions I keep getting asked is, is it too long? And what do you think of the CGI? So what are your answers to those two? You know, um, I, it is long. I found the first hour that I was conscious of how slowly it was moving, and then I kind of sunk into it. Um, the, the interesting thing about the CGI is I'm not sure it was totally necessary. You know, when I when I think of the flashback scenes, if they had been told with a younger actor rather than with Scorsese, uh, uh, rather than with, you know, De Niro being made younger using zeros and ones, I, I feel like we wouldn't have missed anything. And one thing that struck me, and I'm curious if you noticed it too, is that De Niro still moves with the physicality of an older man. He moves his body that way. And so even though his face has, you know, sort of lines and spots removed, you see his body moving, and you know that that's the man in, I guess, his 70s, not in his 40s or whatever age he's playing. Completely agree. It was one of my criticisms of the movie, the scene where he's specific, I don't want to give it to people, but the shopkeeper, when he's kicking him, the way mm -hmm. his arms are, like he clearly looks like he's kicking yes. like a 70-year-old guy would. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And that's something that, you know, this technology is new, and I think people are still learning when it works and how it works. Uh, it's interesting to contrast a slightly different technology that's used in Gemini Man to de-age Will Smith. Um, I haven't actually seen that whole movie, so I can't comment on the, the movie per se, but the, the effect of de-aging Will Smith is, is quite remarkable, partly perhaps because he doesn't seem to have aged much at all since he was in it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. In the case of, uh, by the way, Gemini Man taking a beating from critics, so yeah, I don't think I'm going to see it either. But yes. in the case of Irishman, I do agree with you. It took a little while to kind of find its footing, and it took a little while to adjust the CGI. But I thought... Once Pacino showed up, I mean, he was tremendous. And I know he gets a lot of heat for being, as some would say, an overactor and chewing the scenery. But I thought it was the perfect melding of actor and persona with the actual guy. Because if you know anything about Jimmy Hoffa, he was blustery and bellowing in a Napoleon complex. And I thought Pacino nailed all those aspects, which I knew he would. But I also thought he, he nailed the tenderness of the relationship and the fact that, you know, him and De Niro 
In Heat, it's only one scene. Righteous Kill is a bad movie. Here, though, you can tell these are two guys who really like each other, both on air and off air, and, and they use that chemistry to good effect in the friendship between Frank's character and Hoffa's character. And so it's working on multiple levels. You see two guys who seem quite fond of each other, not only in real life, but also two of the great actors of American cinema. And I say all that knowing that when I saw your tweet, you said, for me, because again, this is the other question that becomes, well, whose movie is it? Who steals the movie? Who most think of? And for you, you were the same as my wife. You were most impacted by Joe Pesci's performance, who's a lot more thoughtful and measured than you'd expect in a Martin Scorsese movie. Yeah, I mean, I was just struck by this is not a Pesci I've ever seen before. I agree with you that Pacino is fantastic in this, and it's and it's Pacino doing some of the things that people criticize him for. It completely works for this character. It's it's lovely to see him and De Niro together. But yeah, the 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 performance that struck me was this very um, contained performance from Joe Pesci, who we I think of as being this firecracker, and he's always kind of the chihuahua yapping at the big dogs. Well, in this movie, he's the Don, he's the boss, and and as is often ca- the case, the most powerful guy in the room is the most calm, and that's how Pesci plays it, and it's it's beautifully done. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful performance, and I think it's going to be just a, I mean, it, along with Pesci, the whole cast, I think the film, Thelma Schoomaker, we all know is brilliant as the editor. I think it's going to be a film that will do very well come Academy Award time. Uh, how about Marriage Story? I also saw the New York Film Festival, and that's getting a lot of buzz for the performances of Driver and Johansson, but also Noah Baumbach, who really put a lot of his own autobiography and his divorce with Jennifer Jason Lee into this movie, which, considering the heavy subject matter, is a lot funnier than people might realize. What did you think of Marriage Story? Yeah, I love Marriage Story. And I have no idea how Noah Baumbach made such a romantic movie about a marriage falling apart, but he did. It's <laughs> it's really romantic. It's really funny and smart um, and, and feels true. Uh, Adam Driver is extraordinary in the movie. Scarlett Johansson is excellent. Um, but, and, but there's this incredible supporting cast to Laura Dern, who plays this um, divorce attorney of, of Scarlett Johansson, is terrific. Alan Alda, a very different kind of attorney uh, for Adam Driver's character, is great. I mean, I do think this movie is just going to kind of roll through award season. Interestingly, the movies we're talking about are both Netflix movies, kind of revealing what a powerhouse that company has become. Uh, in just a few years to have two such different movies that are completely uh, uh, winning with critics and and probably Academy voters as well. Yeah, I think they'll both really, really do well. Um, also, I want to ask you, because <laughs> Twitter always is great, at that, Rebecca, about James Cameron. You've written a book about James Cameron, and uh, you sent a tweet recently about doing an interview with him and the way he started it and the way the conversation went, if you can tell us about that. Well, we did uh, every year at the Hollywood Reporter. We do a list of the 100 most powerful people in Hollywood, and and you know it's somewhat who you'd expect. Bob Iger of Disney is the first person on the list. Um, this year we had some some new folks, the Obamas, because they had started their production company. Um, James Cameron is typically on the list, and so I called him to ask this these questions that we ask everybody on the list, and he is a remarkably uh, blunt guy, which is something that I love about him as an interview subject. So some of the questions that I asked him, he just, he was not having it. Like one was, you know, if you could have any piece of intellectual property in the world, what would you have? Well, James Cameron is one of the last guys in Hollywood who can make an original movie for $250 million. He's not 
sort of salivating over Spider-Man or something. So he said, I, I don't, I don't want any intellectual property. I, I don't, I don't need that. One of the questions was, um, what was your last big splurge? You know, other people are talking about a vacation or a particular item of clothing. For Cameron, he said building a sub, which is very Jim Cameron. But um, my favorite one was when I – one of the questions is, what would you do uh, if you found Bob Iger's cell phone? Who would you call? And he was so – irritated slash amused by that question. He said, I can get anybody on the phone I want. I don't need Bob Iger's cell phone. <laughs> so funny. It's like, to, maybe to others, it would seem like hubris or arrogance, but he's being honest. It's like, no, I'm just, he's just, maybe people I are mean, offended by the fact he's just being, honest. being himself. A lot of people have false humility. The one thing I like about him is he sort of is who he is. He talks the same way to a grip as he does to Bob Iger, as he does to some pesky reporter from The Hollywood Reporter asking him these silly questions. Yeah, it's great. Um, I also loved, I subscribed to The Hollywood Reporter, so I loved your uh, article about uh, El Camino and um, profiling Vince Gilligan and Aaron Paul, and especially oh, as a sportscaster, I I thought of the Gilligan quote where he said, I'm hoping when the movie comes out, people won't say, oh, man, this guy should have left well enough alone. Why did George Foreman <laughs> keep coming out of retirement? You know, I said, oh, my God. And I did have a slight uh, feeling of trepidation, but I thought it was a terrific movie. It's a really fitting epilogue uh, to the story. Well, what was it um, about that profile that stuck out to you talking not only to Vince Gilligan, but also Aaron Paul? Well, the interesting thing, I mean, so often the people who make the darkest things are the nicest, and it sounds cliche to say, but Vince Gilligan is about as different in temperament from James Cameron as you can get, by the way. Very humble. He has a sort of Southern gentility. And it was fun just to go to his office because it's so, for someone who has created something as remarkable as the kind of Breaking Bad universe, it's this very modest office park in Burbank, like across from a, a dry cleaner. And he he picked it because it was convenient for his editor. It's nowhere near where he lives. He feels like it's too fancy. Trust me, it is not fancy. I mean, he's just a guy who um, came from Virginia to L.A. and whose success seems to almost startle him. And it, it's fun to see how that manifests itself. It's also fun to me the lengths they went to to keep the movie secret. Um, you know, most people didn't know anything about it until August. The movie came out in October. Pretty remarkable. That was because of the sort of extraordinary lengths Vince went to to keep it all under wraps, including secretly on a private jet flying Brian Cranston out from his play in New York to the set in Albuquerque, um, you know, shooting him undercover and, and, and whisking him back. It was like a, a sort of military-like operation where they shot his scene in less than 24 hours. Yeah, it's a really fitting tribute. I mean, if you love the show, I mean, there's no reason you wouldn't love El Camino and just all the details that you get. And, and you're right, everything I ever read about Gilgan, he seems like the most humble, uh, <laughs> humble, famously rich, successful guy you could imagine, especially working in entertainment. And uh, I was just, mm -hmm. what a joy to see Robert Forster again in the movie. That was obviously very poignant with the fact he just oh, passed yeah. away, but he's, he's so good in the movie, isn't he? And you yeah, he is so good in the movie. And it's funny, I, I called Vince after Robert Forster died. Tragically, I think it was like the day or the first day the movie was out or the second day the movie was out. And because I don't know if you had ever heard this, but there was a sort of theory that Forster's character in Breaking Bad was actually just a continuation of his character from the Tarantino movie. I forget which yeah, Tarantino yeah. movie it is. Jackie so Brown, Tarantino movie Max Sherry. 
Jackie Brown, thank you, thank you. My brain is fried. But anyway, there was a sort of fan theory that that Vince Gilligan had written the Breaking Bad character as a, as a continuation of the character from the Tarantino movie. So I called Vince. I was like, is that, was that ever true? And he said it's not, but he loved that theory because he loved that Tarantino movie so much. And, and you know, he, they wrote the character with no sense that Forster would be in it. Um, he assumed Forster's, you know, a movie star. Why would he do his TV show? But obviously it all worked out. <laughs> it certainly did. Rebecca Keegan, yeah. you can follow her on Twitter at that Rebecca. Does a phenomenal job for the Hollywood Reporter. Of course, with award season, she's as busy as ever. So we really appreciate you taking a few minutes with us here in Cinephile and all the best. Thanks, Adnan. It was great talking with you. Mount Rushmore. All right, thanks to Rebecca Keegan. She was terrific, as always. A real pleasure to have her here on Cinephile. We go to our Mount Rushmore. That's right, four movies, and the topic is Best DreamWorks Animated Movies. There's a lot more than you might realize at first glance. Abominable, Ants, Baby Boss, B-Movie, Chicken Run, Flushed Away, Home, How to Train Your Dragon, there's three of them. Kung Fu Panda, there's three of them. Madagascar, there's three of them. Monsters vs. Aliens, Mr. Peabody and Sherman, Over the Hedge, Penguins of Madagascar, Puss in Boots, Rise of the Guardians, Shark Tale, three, four Shreks, excuse me, Sinbad, Spirit, The Croods, The Prince of Egypt, The Road to El Dorado, Trolls, Turbo, and Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were Rabbit. They just love cheese. Really wanted to get Wallace and Gromit in there. But I'm going to go with my four, How to Train Your Dragon, Jay Baruchel, Friend of the Pod, Terrific on Cinephile, Good Canadian, fantastic movie. My kids love it. It's a real good movie in terms of, you know, tapping into sorcery and fantasy and all the elements you might think. I mean, shit, who, who wouldn't want to have their own dragon? I mean, it's, it's awesome. How to Train Your Dragon is good stuff there. Over the Hedge is not a great movie, but I'm putting it in there for Gary Shandling. Shandling's fantastic. He plays the turtle in the movie. If you've seen the Gary Shandling documentary, that Judd Apatow did. He talked about how much Shailene really put himself into the character and like rewrote things, and he's playing this neurotic, you know, insecure guy. Over the Edge, just for Gary Shailene, my favorite comedian, I'm putting that one in there. Shark Tale's fantastic. I mean, listen, for the cast alone, the fact you've got Scorsese, uh, Robert De Niro, Michael Imperioli, uh, obviously Will Smith, Angelina Jolie. I mean, it's a fantastic cast. I, Shark Tale is just entertainment, and obviously they're playing off of all the mob jokes and double entendres and all that kind of stuff so shark tale pretty good even i know people like the theme song you have missy elliott doing the uh, car wash and lastly i'll go with shrek i mean think about it he's a dirty filthy guy he just lays in mud you got mike myers voicing him great accents shrek i mean again anytime you're dealing with something that is involving any sort of play on beauty and the beast you know subversive thoughts with a beast just an ugly guy i mean i, I mean i'm all in so i'm gonna go with how to train your dragon over the Hedge, Shark Tale, and Shrek. Joe? All right, I definitely got Shrek on there. Uh, super quotable, so, so funny. It still holds up. I also have Kung Fu Panda with Jack Black. Nice. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that movie. Then How to Train Your Dragon, got to have that on there. And then my sleeper is Baby Boss which came out wow. in 2017. Alec Baldwin plays the baby, and I, I just thought it was a cute movie. And also, babies don't wear suits. That's, that, that's the people. That's what people wear. So I put it on Baby Boss as my final. 
Yeah, the only thing, it's actually reversing the title. It's actually The Boss Baby. Ah, uh, The Boss Baby, yes. But still, still a good movie, even with the wrong title. <laughs> I do like the fact it's Alec Baldwin, and there is one sequence I like, the, the nod to Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and he says, you know, put that bottle down. <laughs> and thankfully does yeah. not say anything else of that immortal scene, and he said in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. But yeah, I, I like the fact it's Baldwin playing off that persona, being this, you know, tough guy and uh, authoritative and domineering, and uh, yeah, just the idea that, obviously for any parents out there, the fact that the babies are the ones running the house, I mean, we can all can all relate to that so yeah boss baby i thought it was all right i, w I definitely wouldn't put it in my rush more i remember being stunned it was nominated for best animated movie i'd have to look up that year maybe somebody can tweet us cinephile pod c-i-n-e-p-h-i-l-e pod tell me what the other nominees were. i remember there was one nominee that year i'm like how did that not get in but boss baby did having said that engelbrecht is going down with boss baby he loves it the butter binge all right, now it's time for the bottom binge. We've only got four weeks left. That's right, four weeks left for the greatest show of all time. And we're looking at season six, episodes 10, 11, and 12. And as always, we're using the Soprano Sessions from Matt Zoller's sites and Alan Seppenwall's a resource. Happy belated birthday to Alan Seppenwall, who celebrated his birthday on Sunday or Saturday. He's a big Yankee fan, so he was tweeting with the fact it's my birthday, and then I think the Yankees lost. I think his birthday was on Sunday. Anyway, sorry, Alan. Hell of a game. Uh, we focus on Mo and Joe, Season 6, Episode 10, written by Matthew Weiner. That's right. You know the name because later he would create Mad Men. And this scene is all about, or this episode specifically is all about Vito. He's driving back to the place all his old friends want to kill him. He's guzzling gin and listening to My Way on an endless loop. At this point, Vito knows he's going to die because you can't go back to where you're from. And they all know in the terminology of the show that you're a fanook. They all know he's gay. And now he's left the mob and now he's going back to the old lifestyle like he knows it he knows he's dead but at the same time he cannot live this life he cannot just live this boring life with his male lover you know being a fix-it guy like this is this is no I, I like to gamble I like to drink I like to party get after it like this is the fun life I got money and I'm gonna hijack things and no this is not fun so he decides to go back and so it's a pretty busy episode you got Johnny Sack played in guilty Tony crushing Carmela's dreams of independence. Polly reveals he's battling cancer. Meadow edges closer to dumping Finn. And Tony finally makes peace with Janice's role in his life. And, you know, you look first off at what's happening with, with Johnny Sack. I mean, this guy's going back and forth with New York and Jersey. He's always dressed the nines, always smoking. He's ruthless and calculated. But now he knows, you know, it's not going to work out with me. So forget it. I'm done. So the fact that he's turning himself over. Later on, Tony's talking about Janice. And he says, it's a really good therapy session with Melfi. He said, she took off. She laughed at all this. Then the trip's over and she's back and she's one of us. And so she wants her peace. Let me tell you, she got nothing because I got the scar, so it's mine. That's about as honest as you get there in terms of Tony talking about the relationship with his sister. But really, this series is about Vito and the fact that even though he's with Jim, you know, you think it's a nice life, but it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's unmanageable. Even as the guys write, Jim slips behind Vito in bed. We cut to one of Bacala's model trains going through a tunnel, like the famous shot of last of North by Northwest. And so the guy with the mob DNA is still there. The urges to drink, gamble, and mess around are too great. And Dartford is not only too sleepy a community for his appetites, but it's one where this former no-work job holder is expected to put an honest day's labor. Vito's internal monologue while playing handyman 
agonizing over the slow passage of time even as he tries to avoid checking his watch is like much of the Dartford interlude, a stylistic departure for the series, but also the most efficient way to get across how temperamentally unsuited he is to this life. And so then we get to Cold Stones, episode 11. And now it's a little bit more about Carmela and the fact that, you know, she goes overseas because she realizes, you know what, I got to do something for myself here too. So she leaves behind North Caldwell, Jersey and goes off to the beauty of Paris. And while she's there, you know, she's getting haunted by, by Adriana. She got a terrible dream in which a French policeman nods towards Adriana and says, your friend, somebody needs to tell her that she's dead. And only now Carmela realizes, yeah, she's been in denial. Of course, that there's no way Carmela, uh, Adriana's still alive, that she's gone. And then she brings up to Rosalie, of course, her close friend, she brings up the death of her husband and her son during dinner. I mean, she's brutal. I mean, they're in the city of lights, and here she's bringing up the fact that you know, her best friend lost her husband and her son. And uh, to Rosalie's defense, I mean, she just kind of handles it and says, listen, you know, I, I don't think about these things. What are you doing, Carmela? We're here in Paris trying to have a good time here. Um, as for Tony, he's having a good time too. You see him getting a happy ending from a stripper. And so even, you know, once Carmela leaves, you know, he's back to his old, old things, but even some of the violence in this episode is particularly crazy. I mean, here's where Vito gets his comeuppance and the fact that Phil and his goons murder Vito, torturing him to death while he's bound and gagged and leaving a pool cue jammed up his anus to remove any doubt as to why he was murdered. I mean, it's crazy. They've also got the scene where Fat Dom gets killed. This is purely an homage to Goodfellas. Carlo and Silvio get annoyed by him because he makes one too many jokes. So they murder Fat Dom with pork store implements after Dom makes one taunt too many while also implying the homophobic Carlo shares Vito's orientation. Uh, even as the guys write the footnotes, the scene owes more than a small debt to the famous Goodfellas moment where Tommy murders Billy Batts, played, of course, by Frank Vincent, after Billy tells him one time too often to go home and get his shine box. Pretty crazy scene there. Also, I mean, even the fact that Phil comes out of the closet, interesting there. He's killing a guy for being gay, and he emerges out of the closet. I mean, as the guys, again, write in the footnotes, is this Phil's way of telling Vito a secret about his own sexuality and have mob culture, a Catholic upbringing, and a controlling wife have forced him to suppress it, other than perhaps when he was in prison? Because as Tony told Melfi, you get a pass for that in the only way he can. That's interesting. I think the guys are searching a little too much there. But bottom line is this, Vito meets an untimely end. And that brings us to the final episode of season six, episode 12, written by Terrence Winter and David Chase and Matthew Weiner. And here you've got Christopher inventing a black girlfriend to avoid confession to Tony that he's actually having an affair with Juliana Margulies. Juliana Skiff, they've been doing it behind Tony's back. Here's a great example here from the guy's writing. At one point, the two addicts, he's talking about Christopher and Skiff, they go to see Vertigo. We're presented with a Hitchcockian double exposure of the two of them in the theater and getting high in Juliana's apartment. Vertigo is about a man trying to turn one woman into another, desperately attempting to redo a tragic event with a happy ending to set the terms of a phenomenon no one can control, mortality. Kelly's no Adriana, and neither is Juliana, even if their names rhyme. Even Tony realizes the fact that when it comes to these people, you know, he is, uh, he is self-aware. As he tells Melfi, you know what I've been realizing? These women, they're all sort of the same. Melfi, Gloria, Juliana, under the same umbrella of dark complexion, smart, and they smell a little bit of money. Even at this point, Tony realizes that AJ's got to do something else. So, you know, he, he puts him in his mob-affiliated construction job. But in, in the process of doing so, putting AJ to work, he catches the eye of Bianca, Danny, Dania Ramirez, a beautiful single mom, which leads to the very funny scene when AJ brings her home. 
And literally, you can see Tony and Carmella's face, the fact they disapproved. Carmella complains to Tony at the season-ending Christmas party. She's 10 years older than him, and she's Puerto Rican. And Tony's response is classic. Dominican, maybe. At least she's Catholic. <laughs> Interesting that AJ falls for her because he's too privileged to appreciate the kind of life Bianca has, the fact that she's got a big heart, she's got to deal with these loudmouths who are always bugging her, and she's got a little boy, Hector. But the fact that... Tony's son is now falling for a single mom who might be Dominican, as Tony says, but at least she's Catholic, is only too perfect. That brings to end season six of The Sopranos. Next time around, we'll dive into season seven, including Soprano Home Movies, which is a great episode. That whole final season of The Sopranos, to me, I think is just perfection. Talk about sticking the landing and finishing as strong as you can. Only nine episodes in season seven. We'll do those over the following three weeks. Thank you, as always, to Rebecca Keegan. Our guest from The Hollywood Report, thanks to my man Joe, and thank you to all of you. Please do subscribe, rate, and review Apple Podcast to Cinephile. Follow us on Twitter, Cinephile Pod. Lots more coming up next week. I'll either be reviewing The Lighthouse from Robert Eggers, starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, or the film Parasite from Bong Joon-ho, which looks like it's going to be a heavyweight contender for best foreign language film. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.